Although edited for television, tonight's thriller contains scenes of suspense and violence which may be unsuitable for young viewers. Parental discretion is advised. So I think the thing to do next would be Glass Corridor. Not because it's chronologically correct, but because I think okay. it would work better for the episode. Because, again, the intention going into the omnibus, most of the omnibuses, I have multiple guests. But I have not recorded with those guests. I've not had the motivation to seek out those guests. And you have a whole bunch of short stories. More than likely, I'm going to just have a full omnibus with you. However, it really depends on how things go with Habit. Because I sure. feel like the name there will probably play into what we end up doing or what we end up experiencing with that. There's a lot to talk about with Habit. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, Aliens Glass Corridor was released on June 3rd, 1998. Xenopedia's publisher summary reads, Frank is a hired killer with a problem. His conscience has caught up with him, and now he's running from himself and his past. In his effort to escape, he encounters a band of stowaways who may provide him with the means for his redemption. When the freighter they are traveling on is threatened by an alien, it appears that Frank is their only hope for survival. According to Comicron, Glass Corridor was the 155th ranked book for the month of release, selling 14,342 copies. In the case of Glass Corridor, the first thing I want to mention, I only vaguely remember this book coming through my shop. And I never remember that on the cover there's a little man. I only ever remember the alien with the <laughs> pinkish background. And having looked at this as a thumbnail for years in the planning stages for the podcast and keeping up with where things are going, that little man just eluded me for a long time. And I'm a little bit embarrassed. It's clear as day when I look at the full <laughs> image. Did you pick this one up when it came out? No, not, not at all. This was the result of a, oh, there's a lot of good aliens comics that I think I might have missed. And just going through, like, not a Wikipedia entry, but going through something in the early 2000s or, or, or late 90s and working out which ones I'd managed to miss that might be interesting and then and then trying to pick them up. So this was just like, oh, it's Aliens by David Lloyd. How did I manage to miss that? And to be honest, probably because David Lloyd isn't as big a draw for me as a lot of other creators. But I sort of decided that I was just going to try and get as many good Aliens comics as possible once I realized that there were so many good ones. You know, yeah, I don't know about you. I have these realizations where I'm like, no, I've realized I like. I realize that I like this artist. And then I'll just suddenly try and get everything by them. And in this case, it was Aliens comics and sort of picking up the loose ends of stuff that sounded interesting that I somehow managed to miss as it was coming out. That was something I did more uh, when I had a shop and therefore had access to a lot more comics where once I closed the shop and stopped going to comic shops, it was more like, oh, I like this talent. I'll continue to support this talent going forward and not worry about the stuff that, especially as trade collections became more and more popular. I'll just wait for them to trade any of the early stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was the kind of thing you'd be forgiven for expecting that Aliens Glass Corridor might turn up in a trade paperback with another three one-shots or something. And I don't think it ever did. But Dark Horse was prone to that. They would release these comics that have no home, but then would get collected into some thematic thing later on. I don't think Aliens Glass Corridor was collected anywhere apart from maybe omnibuses or something now. 
Yeah, it literally took a decade for it to be in the final Aliens Omnibus Volume 6. So that's kind of a long way to be want to read the story. Yeah. I'm familiar with David Lloyd as an artist, not as a writer. Do you have much experience with him at that discipline? No, only, only that he does do it. Yeah, David Lloyd is, for, for me, is Viva Vendetta, a Raven in UK comics, which he also didn't write. But then he's done a few European graphic novels or certainly a series of a European graphic novel that he wrote. But yeah, I think it's like typical UK stroke vertigo pretensions in terms of what he's going for writing-wise and probably sort of shocking off having worked with Alan Moore. Like, once you've worked with Alan Moore, how do you actually manage to write anything that doesn't have his fingerprints on it? Yeah, and with the collaborators that he's more friendly with, he seems to have an influence over their work. Rick Veach, in particular, comes to mind as somebody who was in regular contact with Moore and would talk over story stuff with him. Even a Rick Veach project is infused somewhat with that more quality to it and with me i think i had i had one uk magazine that had a night raven segment in it and i think that lloyd illustrated that one i don't re- i think it was a delano script on that one though and yeah. mostly it's uh, it's just v for vendetta for me but in recent years i checked out the uh, dc comics anthology wasteland and they had actually oh, yeah of course yeah, they talked about Wasteland in a, in a book called DC Focus. It was a giveaway comic. And the imagery from that first issue story with the Fugu, this this uh, plant that has special properties, it just imprinted on my brain. It was so such striking imagery that I'll always remember it to my dying day. But I never read Wasteland because it just wasn't an accessible series for me. And then finally reading it for the first time as an adult, I don't think the series quite rates to the degree that the people who are advocates for it state, but certainly yeah. that first David Lloyd story, and really most of the David Lloyd stories, the the artwork is really exceptional. I think it was really him at the top of his game, even more so than V for Vendetta. And I, I would definitely seek out his work in that series, but especially that first story, the art is just phenomenal, and it's a strong story as well. Yeah, I think his art on V for Vendetta has a, um, it suffers a little bit because it was so much of it was done for black and white, and then ultimately colored for the DC version. The later issues, I think it's like 10, that the last three issues were drawn for color. So there's a definite change between the kind of like Starenko, Miller, Chiroscuro type stuff in the earlier issues that looks a little bit odd when colored because you think that the color seems a bit almost unnecessary to when he actually knew it was being colored in the last few issues and adapted for it but yeah wasteland i got for george freeman more than anyone else but the david lloyd stuff was amazing but then yeah otherwise there's what the war stories with garth ennis J is for Jenny and Nightingale, which were fantastic. I think more than anyone else, the only other person I could think of who compares to him for genuine horror in comics is maybe Fraser Irving, who does something very different because it's so kind of color-based. But I think David Lloyd with The Horrorist, his couple of issues of Hellblazer with Grant Morrison and The War Stories with, with Garth Ennis. I mean, he's a great horror artist. And I think this has got some great horror images in it. But yeah, certainly story-wise, it's uh, it leans a bit pretentious. 
it's funny. I wouldn't have connected uh, Lloyd to Fraser Irving. I can very much see it in the DNA of Irving, just like how he renders the characters. You know, they they they, they look yeah. of a, of a piece. They look like they're related to one another. Yeah, like Fraser Irving feels to me like a combination of somehow like Bernie Wrightson and David Lloyd. There's something I've seen there for a little while, and it's maybe this kind of even like Fraser Irving will do this tortured-looking faces and very specific lighting that David Lloyd did as well. And also, like, figures in motion and, like, sort of look like exaggerated silhouettes and things like that. It, you know, one would do it in color, one would do it with black and white. But I, I, I can see the influence, for sure. Yeah, and it may be both. It may be made up, assumed, but I can see it, too. Yeah. Well, again, I wouldn't have... You're the one who drew the connection for me. Right? <laughs> Once you said, it's like, yeah, I can definitely see it. So the story itself is pretty straightforward. I'd almost say it's less Sin City, more stray bullets. It just strikes me as, like, kind of an alien story kind piece. of small. Yeah, and we also specifically, we have a, a protagonist that is compromised. This is somebody who is a paid killer, but he's not necessarily game for it anymore. He's kind of having a nervous breakdown, and that's impacting how he relates to other characters in the story and how he's going to relate to the alien when confronted with it. Feels like maybe he was reading Latham when he came up with the story. I can see that in his DNA. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that David Lapham wouldn't exist without like Tarantino and that kind of voice in, in cinema. I, I think that perspective in cinema, the different character focuses on any given scene impacts Stray Bullets a lot, probably even more so than Sin City. I remember when Stray Bullets came out and there was like dummies who were like, oh, black and white, it's like Sin City. <laughs> And I don't think that's the case, but I, I, I think there was something about Reservoir Dogs and Tarantino that just kind of cascaded throughout pop culture writing, you know? I think that idea of telling something from like, what did the ashtray think of what was happening is sort of stems out of that kind of Tarantino influence. Yeah, certainly he had an approach that said his crime fiction apart from other people's. But also I think it's just that we'd had the crime fiction of the 50s that just dominated the field. And then thanks to the Comics Code Authority, that all got quashed. And then after Tarantino, you had that resurgence. But even before Tarantino, you had, again, Frank Miller's Sin City helping to bring that sort of uh, Mickey Spillane quality back into the comics. And it just sort of grew and grew from there. And now we've had Azarello and we've had... Brubaker, I guess. And, and, and Sean Phillips. It's like, I, I think that now it's just the genre. And you're not going to point to one particular person being, oh, you guys are ripping off Frank Miller. It's like, no, it's this is just the genre in comics. There's a, there's a collection of influences. And I do think that... Like most of the guys who helped to popularize crime fiction in the comics, particularly the ones we named, are drawing from actual crime novels. Where I do tend to agree that Latham, I feel like maybe was drawing more from the movies and, and didn't necessarily have the same frame of reference that a Brubaker or an Azarello does, as a for instance. Yeah, yeah no, 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 for sure. My David Lloyd Vertigo thing, I think, just comes from the fact that Vertigo is so UK focused. This idea of the perspective of a criminal is, as, a, as opposed to like a hero hero, is something quite specific to this, I guess. Yeah, and the alien really isn't super relevant to the story. It's just an inciting incident. If they let loose a, a lion from the cage, it'd be about the same 
difference. It's really about this killer who's compromised and how he's going to deal with the situation, whether or not he's going to stop being defined by murder and actually try to protect people, which isn't a groundbreaking story, especially in comics in the least. I, th I thought it was fine. This is a story, though, that sort of contributes to my struggles with the Aliens show at the moment. There's a lot of like, this is an okay one-off story. It's fine. The art's pretty. I like all the pages of the artwork. It's not something that's particularly compelling. It's not something that I necessarily feel like I need to talk about. Moving on to the next thing. That's why it's necessary, I think, to talk about who's doing the work and whether we <clears> like the, the look of the work because the actual stories aren't anything that's going to inspire me. To, yeah. There's not a lot there for me to discuss. I, I like the pages of artwork. I'd be happy with any of these pages. If I were going to pick one, it would probably be the page toward the end where the killer is reflecting on his crimes. It's a silent page. There's a nice little circular uh, motif where it's a grid where they're like looking through a porthole or something and he's surrounded by people that are relying on him to step up if they're not if they're all going to live or if he's just going to try to save himself so i like that page but any of the pages would be nice for me but also i can take or leave them at the same time yeah yeah it the story's not the thing with this issue for sure but he um he does some like amazing it looks like he's taken some opportunities to do some really iconic alien drawings like there's a halfway halfway through there's like a full figure sort of alien hunched over the page with the guy walking down the corridor where everything's twisting around it is is amazing too but yeah it's a it's a vehicle for the art story's fine but it's also probably as good a vehicle for david lloyd art as i've seen i think he's not someone i i follow but it's a gorgeous comic and with that i think we can move on sure according to mike's amazing world of comics alien stalker number one was released on june 24th 1998 but there's some disparity there. There are many other sources that listed as coming out on May the 6th. That might have been the attended date that it blew. And coming out potentially also on June the 1st, according to the Library of Congress. Comicron says that it was released May 1998, where it was ranked the 150th best-selling book of the month. The top-selling book for the month was 300 number one at 42nd place. Star Wars Crimson Empire number six was in 52nd place. Star Wars Shadow of the Empire Evolution number four was 76th place. Star Wars X-Wing Rogue Squadron number three was 94th place. Lost in Space number two was 127th place. And behind Stalker was Goldsmith Cats, Goldie versus Misty number seven in 163rd place. And Blade of the Immortal on Silent Wings number one in 169th place. Estimated sales for Alien Stalker was 15,604 copies. Xenopedia offers the publisher's summary. In a time of myth, when Vikings ruled the land, when their berserker rage went unmatched by anyone who opposed them, in this fierce and merciless time, the legendary warrior Reynolf the Wraith Stalker is summoned by the granddaughter of a dead king to best the deadly enemy. But this enemy is unlike anything Reynolf has ever faced. In the dense cold mists of this ancient land hides an invincible creature born of the underworld with iron skin, dagger teeth, and blood that burns stone, known in the far-flung future as an alien. Stalker by David Wenzel. This is one that you expressed a real enthusiasm to tackle. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited. What a comic. So, so, David, so David Wenzel, I only know from two other comics. He did The Hobbit with Chuck Dixon writing at the Hobbit adaptation. That was perfectly fine. And then he did a thing called The Wizard's Tale with Kurt Busiek 
called Busiek, um, I think it is, but I'll go with my teenage rendering of his name, which is Busiek. And that was also fine. But this thing, man, God, you mentioned when we talked about Aliens Alchemy, the logo. The logo is absolutely the best thing about this. Using the chest burster to form an S on the cover is pretty fantastic. And I feel a little bit bad because the story is a bit rubbish. The art is perfectly fine. The lettering is as bad as any lettering I ever recall seeing in a comic, which is the worst thing about it. I hate it. It was amateurish and confusing. And I know that lettering is like the soundtrack in a film or whatever. People say, if it's good, you don't notice it. If it's brilliant, it can elevate things. Or This was the worst lettering I've come across in a professional comic, I think. It contains at least two grammatical errors, which just feel like even the editor couldn't give a shit to bother reading it before they published it. I just thought it was dross apart from the art. And the art was fine, but didn't tell the story properly. So it was a pretty comic, but the storytelling in it was just weak at times. And and so you had a terrible letterer playing catch up, trying to actually sort out some of the shortcomings in the comic storytelling. Just a pretty terrible comic. That said, sorry, I'm going on. I do think it was salvaged somewhat by the reveal that it's kind of a flashback being told by like a colonial marine in the present day at the very end i was like okay fair enough it's some some squaddy telling a story to the people that he's about to drop onto a planet with about his ancestors and that sort of salvaged that salvaged the plot it didn't salvage the writing that's my take on it this is where you tell me that it's your your favorite of all the aliens comics you've read <laughs> just as my pronunciation arc is the same as yours i think that yeah. through twitter i started saying music oh and that's just my brain it may be completely <laughs> wrong i know everybody's gonna know who kurt music is by how you pronounce it and that's how i used to pronounce it too no we're we're on the same page I, I, what i'm reminded of is like in the 80s after guys like bill sinkevich everybody decided they wanted to paint and he had this glut of painted books then and then of course alex ross comes along with marvels and kingdom come and then they were, the painted art books are the new hotness again and everybody who could paint suddenly got a book deal i look at this the, the artwork here i'm not disparaging it i think it's very good fantasy artwork and it looks exactly like every other fantasy book i can think of in the comic books from this time period or children's books that had similar type of artwork it's not my bag i'm not a fantasy guy i'm especially not a fantasy guy from one of these time periods like the viking times i'm not into the whole viking thing uh i, I definitely the, the guy who's telling the story to end the book was almost certainly from iceland because <laughs> these are guys that are deeply proud of their their uh viking heritage and i can see them continuing to talk it up into the 23rd century or whatever but yeah <laughs> I, I, this this isn't my kind of art this isn't my kind of story uh, as soon as you start your story with a scroll i know i'm fucked I will say that I'm not nearly as down on the lettering as you are in general. I think it's serviceable. It didn't really grab me one way or the other. But I will say that it's got that problem that a lot of painted art has where they're trying to do very comic booky sound effects like the calling of the, the crows or the whoosh of the fire. And it looks like a Bronze Age Marvel comic. And it just does not pair well with this type of artwork. But so, I, I, I just can't be bothered to give a shit because this is exactly the kind of comics I never like reading. It's the kind of stories I don't care for. And ultimately, it's just a story anyway, so it's not relevant to the continuity. There are plenty of Aliens fans that one of their, their red lines is they don't want anything set in the past, especially on Earth, because that if it, if it does, the story starts with the 
Nostromo, and anything before that better take place on an alien world. It better not be on Earth, especially not in the Viking Age. But then it, it doesn't matter because it's all bullshit anyway. I'm not as rigid as a lot of people are on that, but I still don't like it. So I, I, I'm just not into it. It feels like the, the end of the millennium. I know that more or less Dark Horse is winding down their time paying for the license. And it feels like, okay, we've got a bunch of stuff that was in the pipeline. Let's get it all pushed out before 1999 and be done with it. <laughs> And it just feels like a glut of these meaningless stories that I'm having to push my way through. But, but surely they maintain their license for like another 20 years thereafter. Nope. They stopped paying for the license around 1999, 2000. And then they go for a decade without publishing anything besides crossovers, intercompany crossovers. So they, but, they had a big... But nobody else had the license. Huh? No, nobody else had the license. Titan might have done a little bit of stuff, but not proper comic books. So what had happened is Dark Horse continued to do, you know, Batman versus Aliens, the crossover with Judge Dredd, stuff like that. I think they produced a, a tie-in with Aliens versus Predator. But in terms of coming out with regular miniseries and specials from about 90, I, I think that 99 was a stopping point. And then they don't restart having regular Aliens books until 2009. Because the big relaunch of both Predator and Aliens in 2009 are Kuti and... Brunwood. Yeah, Brian Wood comes a little bit later. I was trying to remember who the artist was. I don't think he was Monkey, but they, they, they got some decent people to, to relaunch both the books, and they did it for a free comic book day, one of the earlier ones. Again, it was 2009. Mm. But for the, for the period, the, the, that's one of the things I've been working towards. I've been proud that this is the show that I've gotten out at least once a month for now going into the fourth year. But And, and I, I was working to the point where we were going to start doing the crossovers because I knew there was only going to be so many of them. And I figured that I would be able to get some new guests or, or some enthusiasm from old guests because of the crossover element. Oh, look, I get to do one with Batman. Oh, I get to do one with Green Lantern. And that's been true. Yeah. And I need those guests because they're the ones who are going to have to bring the enthusiasm because I'm I'm tapped. And honestly, <laughs> my, my, end, my end game right now is get to Xenogenesis, get to the end of the regular Dark Horse stuff, and then I'm probably, that, and that's going to take me to around the end of 2024. We're going to have a movie in that time period, so I'm hoping maybe that'll relight the fire. But if it doesn't, I've recently started a Terminator podcast and it was yeah. created specifically because there's just so much interaction between Terminator and Aliens in terms of the publishers and everything else. This is the 40th anniversary of Terminator, so I have to do everything in 2024 that I can. But I think that in 2025, what's probably going to happen is they're both going to go bi-monthly and I'll get to alternate because I've kind of painted myself into a corner. I'm having to do two shows about these properties. Plus, I have a show that I like to do about my comics reading on a month-to-month -month basis. And then Mac in particular on the Marvel Comics, uh, Marvel Superhero Podcast has been wanting to read more Iron Man stuff and cover more of that. And I've been hit, wanting to hit a bunch of anniversaries like Daredevil and Punisher. So I really can't do anything else. Like you and I recorded some stuff for a spawnometer. I have the material for both sides, the spawn side and the character side. And I haven't even bothered to touch on it because there's only four weeks in most months. My father has gotten excited about doing bonding agents, so we've gotten some stuff in the can there. And I don't in, uh, what? Oh, more more James Bond stuff. Yeah. Okay. And I, I until I have a fifth week, then I don't have the space to do that because I'm only putting out one podcast a week. So it's like I'm kind of trapped in 2024 with a set shows every single week almost. And <clears throat> it's like by the end of 2024, that's I know that's going to burn me out pretty bad. <laughs> 
So this is probably the last year of monthly alien stuff. And again, the end game is get through that first run of Dark Horse material and then kind of go from there. But the gap years okay. are going to be real easy because there's only so many projects in that time period. So I'll probably get to near the 2009 relaunch and then that's when I'll have to seriously consider the path forward. Yeah. But Stalker's not helping is what I'm saying. That's, that's, that's the end <laughs> yeah. game here is stories like this are not making me want to continue to read alien stuff. And knowing that I have no. to read an aliens book or a bunch of aliens books every month it, it, i need a movie or a tv show or a really good project and I, I, it hasn't happened yet well honestly i'm not a lettering obsessive but just go back and look at it specifically from a lettering perspective i think you'll find because honestly i don't care i don't care for the most part but this lettering is awful and that foosh page that you mentioned specifically i get that it's not a visual medium podcast but in terms of the lettering here of like on that foosh page of like am i following am i going to the panel on the right am I going to the panel? as well as terrible calligraphy it's also got terrible balloon placement i just it's shocking i'm not trying to name uh, names but what i will say is both letterer and the editor are unfamiliar to me and that that, <laughs> that may be a, this this stalker may be a reason why that's the case i also have to what, say what, as, as somebody who read through all the blackthorn timeline books in recent memory which again questions whether or not you you would call that professional publishing but the fact <laughs> yeah. that every page had panels that didn't go where they needed to go, had balloons coming from the wrong mouths, every page had a misspelled word, or the words that were so crammed together that you couldn't tell where one word stopped and the next word started. This is, I can read this. I'm not You've saying it's groomed. good. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not hiring this guy for my comic books, you know, but it, it got the job done to the degree that I, and I, I just can't invest enough to care, really. It's like, yeah, the push sucks. Yeah. The book sucks. I don't care about the stalker, you know? It didn't impede my progress, is what I'm saying. Phil Amara is actually one of the bigger Dark Horse editors, like Star Wars and Alien, like on their licensed books. But the other thing worth mentioning, I think, is that the, the book itself was designed by Craig Thompson of like blankets and Habibi fame and so you get some quite nice design elements in the he was probably responsible for the the logo to be honest Craig Thompson did something on that before he started doing comics I guess and unfortunately the digital copy of the piece those elements are gone the, the logo oh, okay. the, the, the stalker logo is gone the front piece is gone all these digital copies have the same blue page with a circle circular uh, Mike Bignola image of the alien you know the, so it's, okay. it's all uh, font so I don't, I don't get to enjoy any yeah. Craig Thompson design elements okay well that's a wise move so just just for the reference uh -huh. Pretty neat. They managed to find. I bet everyone who published a comic beginning with a salvation and what was the other one? Sacrifice. Mm -hmm. They're probably going, oh god, I can't believe we didn't use a face <laughs> uh, a chest burster for an S. Fucking idiots. Well, they were incorporating <laughs> all the the uh, Christian imagery though, so they had their own agenda True. there. Um, <laughs> yeah. What's your page? From Stalker. <sighs> I, I I don't care to be honest. There's not enough alien to be interesting, and the watercolor thing doesn't really do anything for me on a brief flick through no i still don't care sorry as someone who cares Look, it, a lot it took about a couple of passes and... too so I'm, I'm right there with you what i ultimately decided on was the page where the xenomorph is on the boat 
killing his way through all the Vikings, mostly because, you know, I'm, I'm tired of these guys by this point. I want them all to die. But then the, the bottom <laughs> half of the page is the blood splattering on the princess and her starting to freak out. And it's like, okay, this this has the most stuff in it that would be of interest to me. But yeah, I, I would definitely, if I could take the credits from this page and apply it to another book with an artist that I'm more interested in, I would do so. If it has to be a page from this book, then that I guess that's going to be the page. But it's not going to yeah. break me up if I get another one. No, in, in, in a pinch, I'll go last page of the book where it feels slightly more cohesive. You've got the, the, the soldier. And, and to be honest, that's where the book came alive for me. It was like, oh, I get it. It's someone telling the story of his ancestors. And you get a little bit of an alien. You get some colonial marines. You get a little bit of the tattoos that represent the book and, and some of the art. But I'm also kind of assuming now the lettering might be done on the art. But um, either either way, yeah, that, that last page is probably the closest I get to giving a shit about the art. That's probably the most negative thing I've had to say about a comic that I actually own. Um. <laughs> and, and again, how did was the, this was just like, hey, some of these alien stories are going to be by some alien stories. Oops. Exactly. Yeah. This, this was in my aliens pickups of like a little bit of Googling, a little bit of Wikipedia, a little bit of my comic shop and coming up with a list of stuff to sort of fill gaps when like ma- mainstream comics by and large haven't done it for me for a little while. I don't care about characters as such. So once I actually spot a seam, whether it's a creator or a franchise or something, then then I'll, I'll, I'll dig in and mostly sell the stuff on quite quickly when I realize I actually don't care. And somehow Alien Stalker managed to stay in a collection. God bless it. Uh, or yeah yeah <laughs> i was just thinking about uh that uh, helen hot water where it's like oh but it's gene colon let me go buy it again exactly three times mike's amazing world states that aliens wraith number one was released on july 15th 1998 xenopedia's publisher summary reads on earth or in the dark reaches of space teenagers are concerned with one thing meeting other teenagers it's no different for rourke the latest arrival to the off-world agri-colony of Tigru Miras. He's making new friends fast, particularly with a young girl named Hope. But there's more to this farm colony than Rourke first suspected. Every town has a dark secret not spoken in the light of day. Tigru Miras' secret just happens to have sharp teeth, acid blood, and a murderous hunger for human flesh. Also, according to Xenopedia, this story will eventually tie into the short story Once in a Lifetime, which serves as a tie-in to the Aliens Apocalypse miniseries. Aliens Wraith was the 160th best-selling comic for the month of release at 13,511 copies. Aliens Wraith, was it the Ronnie Del Carmen cover, or do you think it was just general aliens buying spree that contributed to your purchase of that one? It was a bit of that, but there's no bad element to the creative team for me. Jay Stevens, I knew from Oddville and Atomic City, Jet Cat, so I knew him already. The Ronnie Del Carmen cover, I think I probably got it based on the cover, thinking that it was another part of the Mondo Heat, Mondo Pest sort of story arc but i can't say i was disappointed with rizzo i mean that was what 98 i can't remember when, when 100 bullets started must have been earlier than 98 but yeah certainly rizzo wasn't the big draw although in retrospect he is it wasn't me buying aliens comics or keeping an eye on them on a regular basis but it wasn't too long after it came out that i picked it up so this was in fact before 100 bullets it was about a year before 100 bullets 
Okay. So that it, that would, I think, contribute to, like, I don't know who this guy is, but this, it looks good. I really like the looks mm. of the book. Jay Stevens, I like. I, I've enjoyed him on a few things. Struggled with this story, though, because he did that thing that I hate when uh, sci-fi guys do. I also hate it when, I, I find this happens sometimes with artists turned writers, where they try to do something they think of as being writerly, and it's actually something that writers would have considered doing and then dismissed because they knew better. Where it's like, oh, I'm going to take earthly terms, and I'm going to turn them into future terms because you wouldn't know what that that thing meant in the future so he can't say you know is this on the level he's got to say uh, what is what is the phrase that he uses i don't know it's always about taking something that would be a thing that we might potentially say and then turn it into something that works in the future and it just ends up coming out like kind of a bit of gibberish and or stops you in your tracks you're trying to figure out what they're trying to say because they're not saying it in a way that you recognize as something that a human being would ever say and sure like i found that grating like um miller's future young people speaking don't know returns i don't actually mind that one as much because i think that's more of like a dan waters thing where instead of trying to figure out what the youths the younglings are saying today you're just making up stuff and you're like oh rock or something like that you come up with a word yeah like you know i don't mind that as much it's when you like take a thing and you phrase it in a different way so that it sounds more futuristic and i know what yeah. you're trying to say but i have to sit there and like think about it so i'm trying to find an example yeah i, I wonder hard take a lot for instance, there's yeah. the whole sweet Christmas thing of constantly saying sucking, where you know that yeah. the other word, which is okay. I don't mind that as much if, if it were not in that same context. Tigru Myers is a distant cousin to the urban zones you are tuned to. In time, you shall succumb to its calming influence, brother. Have patience. You know, so there's a little bit of like a demolition man kind <laughs> of thing, but it's like really just, it doesn't flow well. It doesn't sound well coming out of people's mouths. Here's another one. So let me get this level. Not straight. Let me get this level. Yeah. You tree planters get thrilled by sitting around a fire, singing and drinking cold tea. Is that it? I mean, how do you even stay awake? It's just not <laughs> dialogue. No need for aggression, brother. If you aim, if your aim is to get thrilled, there is an infamous cave nearby. I'll be glad to show you. Do, do not confront Botic. You are sending a negative vibe. Like, stop, stop, stop it. No. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah. get where they're going for. It, it doesn't help, too, that all the characters in the book, except for the girl's an asshole. But especially the lead character is a pretentious fuck. And so I'm kind of rooting against them the whole time. But the art yeah. is fantastic. And so that, that drives me the whole way. And, I, and it, it really does impress upon me that Russo could have told the story in the adaptation. He just chose not to. Because his storytelling works perfectly fine here. It's always it's possible, too, maybe there's a language barrier the first in the first round and there was stuff that the the writer wasn't able to communicate correctly but i don't think that's it i think that he just had the space to tell a story correctly and he, he's a, he's a great storyteller here in a way that he wasn't on the adaptation because he just knew that it wasn't worth the trouble well it's, it's funny because because the Rizzo, so the does amazing stuff so often but i have to say even on 100 bullets my my memory of Rizzo is that he will occasionally do stuff that's just a little bit too obtuse to the point where I've had conversations with mates about it as to like, what do you think's happening here? Oh, oh, she's obviously kicking the thing and then he hits the thing and then and I'll be like, yeah, because I thought that she kicked the thing, but then it did, you know, so so he, he's someone who's always ambitious and does, I, I always describe him as being the guy who will tell a story 
from the angle of like what an ashtray is thinking or or what a glass of whiskey is thinking or something and so he does do amazing stuff and i wonder if some of the alien stuff in the alien resurrection isn't isn't falling afoul of some let's just say overly ambitious storytelling i get you on this one not on the, on the writing front but it's another book that for me is salvaged by the twist i'm not a super fan of an o henry twist as the salvation for everything but just the sudden twist that it kind of ties so directly into normal alien history is very pleasing to me and i'm the exact opposite it's like oh we got this <laughs> the story of these kids who are daring to go to the cave and the cave has an old alien in it and they have to try to get away so they don't die and blah blah, blah. and that, all that's straightforward that's some goonie shit fine whatever i'm cool with it up until the colonial marines show up and then the big twist is oh well we got to kill all these kids so it's like okay so everybody we've been following the story gets wiped out by the colonial marines so that we can give the shot here at the end of the jet jockey a space jockey whatever it's like i'd much rather just well tell me the story about the colonial marines don't tell me the story about the kids that i don't like anyway but if you're going to tell me the story about the kids don't give me the cynical ending where the colonial marines come and wipe them out so they don't tell the secret of the alien you know they but that being said, if I'm going to take one of the pages, it's going to be the space jockey because that's from the... <laughs> and he's drawing the Colonial Marines and he don't he doesn't really do that in the adaptation. He does it for two pages here. I want the two pages with the Colonial Marines, but especially the ones with the space jockey because it looks freaking cool. Yeah. I love, the, like you say, the Shiro effect and the way that he's able to, to impress upon you so much detail without necessarily putting in the detail. It's the, the, the illusion of detail sometimes. You know, he puts enough on the walls to where when everything goes blank at the middle so that he does not obscure the thing that you're supposed to be looking at so your eyes going directly where you want the eye to go uh, yeah. I, I totally dig that uh, great style the previous page the, the problem for me is the one kid with his hand up in a, in a curled uh, you know in a rictus curl because yeah. it, it's just comical and it, like if the story like Jay Stevens can do comedy so if the book had been funnier then I'd have been like <laughs> look at that shitty kid look at how he died but in a story that's told kind of straight it's like that's sort of morbid you know <laughs> I don't know if that really fits what the yeah. man was but you know it's fine I, 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 I'm here for the art. The art's great. That's all I, I need from it. Yeah. I, well, I think it nails that cynicism. And I, and I think it's a big part of the alien stories is this kind of, this weird balance between kind of a hero's journey and survival story when there's dual enemies. You know, the, the, you got the upfront enemy of the xenomorph and then the, the actual enemy of fuckers with money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and the colonial marines that they pay to come and silence folks. So it all feels very on brand. I like the ending. I think it's fair to say I don't care about the kids before they die. And so maybe a shortcoming of the story is that it doesn't do enough to make the end hurt. You don't give enough of a, of a shit about the characters for the ending to have any meaning. But I quite like the idea that actually the story is these guys will come in and wipe out anyone if they're told to for their corporate overlord bosses. Yeah, the truth Sorry. is, I, yeah. I don't. There, there's nothing there that I can see offhand that explicitly states they're colonial marines. These could be mercenaries, but the, that they look the part. They look like they were, could have been an aliens. Thank you, Urizo, for giving me that. Yeah. But what's your page, though? If you've taken the last page, I'll take the penultimate page. So, so you like the curled Richter's hand, then? <laughs> Yeah, I certainly don't have a big problem with it. I love the kind of pointillist effects of the figures in, in sort of silhouette, kind of behind the mist of their own bullets, if you like, the, the mist they've created. And yeah, that previous page is, is pretty great. And the, the page with all the, the kids getting shot with the blood 
splatting out in both directions is pretty grisly, like you say, pretty morbid. But I mean, there's not a page in the book that I'm kicking out of bed, so. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, visually, all this Rizzo stuff that we've talked about this evening, man, it does it for me. It's all great. It's it, it, excellent work. It makes it worthwhile to have gone through these books just to see that artwork. Yeah. Did, did, did you read his Spaceman comic that he did with Azarello that no, no, I think it, just died on the vine? Yeah. That, that was Vertigo, wasn't it? Like late Vertigo? Yeah, it was, a, yeah, it was post, post 100 Bullets and pre the Moonshine book that he did at, um, at Image with Azarello. It had a lot of those Miller future language slangy ticks so it was all it was a bit difficult to read azarello i think considers himself a, a student of language and will sit in bars and write down how people talk to inspire how his characters speak that all being said spaceman's a pretty odd thing but pretty gorgeous because rizzo gets to do so much that's quite grounded it's lovely to see him doing sort of big sci-fi flooded planets and destroyed cities and things you know I mourn the shuddering of Vertigo, but also everything on those last few years didn't that even with the team from 100 Bullets, it just didn't seem like any of that stuff was catching with audiences anymore. Uh, and I yeah. don't know what it was, why it was, but none of those series seem to have any long-term success. So it kind of makes sense to where DC would give up on the branding. And I, I, it's sometimes weird to me to even think, why did you even try? I guess out of loyalty to the company that has supported you for 100 issues on a comic book. but they And they had some pretty big names on a lot of that stuff. And just none of it seemed to be getting an audience anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I zombie or whatever. I mean, it was just, it, there was a point where I'd hear about Vertigo books being cancelled. And I was like, wow, I didn't even know that was going. <laughs> like the last what five years of Vertigo or something obviously they'd lost some editorial folk but it, it's also part of the thing that makes me feel quite old with comics where it's like well I don't know your cover artist I don't know your artist I don't know your writer why am I going to bother yeah well that and you could see it felt a little like the B jobs were going to Vertigo even by the name people it's like if, if, if it's really commercial I'm going to own it outright and I'm going to take it to Image or another True. where I've got all the rights if it's something where I feel like I need a corporate subsidy then I'll take it over to Vertigo yeah so I, I think that might play into play as well so you, you can you kind of smell it you can smell that you're getting something from the USA Network instead of HBO so, <laughs> you know yeah Uh, not that long ago, I covered Batman Aliens. That wasn't mm. anything to write home about for the most part. Even with Bernie Wrightson, that wasn't anything that I was doing cartwheels over. For that, that made me laugh. Yeah. Your, your show on that made me laugh a lot because I picked it up as a trade paperback just like two or three months ago because I'd read it at the time and thought the whole idea of the, com the, the combination was really fucking stupid. And then I was like, but it's Bernie Wrightson, so I must have, at least he's got good art. And there are, there are moments, but but by and large, it's quite odd, late, later career, Bernie Wrightson. So I reread it and thought, oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it was okay, just, just, just a bit rubbish, just a bit empty. And then listening to, to you and your military pal, 
<laughs> to take it apart. I was like, yeah, baby. <laughs> you know, it, was just, <laughs> it was just just, awful. So it, re- it really made me laugh to listen to that particular lens. Like, if you came at it from, like, a typical comics fanboy approach of, like, has it got big fighty bits in it? Then you might be okay. But when once you actually... Um, and, and similar to the Predator Holland, Helen Hot Water, um, that thing of like faux, I've seen a film once, military speak, that just as soon as you sort of try and take it remotely seriously, you realise how, how, how stupid it all is, um, was quite funny. So so yeah, your, your episode on that and and the take of, of your mate in particular was was wickedly entertaining. Well, and it's one of those things too where again, hand raising just a common pathetic fanboy. If I'm reading the military speak and I don't think it rings true, imagine what a drill to the teeth it is for somebody who actually knows how these guys should be talking <laughs> and acting. So I, I it was I, I mentioned in the episode I was so glad that he didn't love this material too, because I don't enjoy. <laughs> I don't want to bring in some raving Batman fan who's like, "Oh man, this is." so awesome this is so cool i love i can't wait to talk about it i'm so happy and then i just shit all over it but if we can both join in the shitting that's just awesome that's that's exactly what i'm here for <laughs> for the for the bad books at least you did good Pale Winner Peanut Cop was very active on World Spine's Tumblr pages, liking the Dark Horse Presents galleries for Alien The Illustrated Story, Aliens Book 1 Outbreak, Aliens Book 2 Nightmare Asylum, Aliens Book 3 Earth War, Aliens Book 5 Hive, Colonial Marines, Earth Angel, Newt's Tale, Aliens Omnibus 2, Aliens Rogue and the Predator Versus, Aliens Sacrifice, Salvation, Stronghold, Aliens vs. Batman, Aliens vs. Martial Law, Secret Tribunal, Aliens vs. Predator, Aliens vs. Predator 2, Aliens and Predator, the deadliest of the species, Predator, Predator Omnibus Volume 2, Space Marines, and William Gibson's Alien 3, the unproduced screenplay, Andrew Leyland, Billet Spy Vinyl, Billy Hines, who tweeted, Nice. Rereading some aliens at the moment. It's a mixed bag, but by and large, I'd say an overlooked corner for some comics gold. Captain Entropy, who wrote, A couple more thoughts on this podcast. First, I want to make clear that I didn't want anyone to shoot a monkey. That would be cruel. I just expected better marksmanship. Second, Frank had me pose for a photo. I thought I'd post it here for all of my thirsty fans, especially since I'm so good at dodging the paparazzi. It's like they aren't even trying to get a photo of me. Diablo Frank also designed me a snazzy logo, or at least selected me a snazzy font. Either way, I like it. I really hope Diablo Frank isn't paying attention to this thread, because we know how he responds to positive feedback, but podcasting with him was a great experience. That warning I received from the Texas Rangers was totally unnecessary. Thanks for letting me guess, Frank. Siskoid replied, there's the Frank on paper, and there's the Frank in reality. To which DC Dave added, I'm not sure if that's supposed to reassure me or serve as a warning. Chris had bad books for beginners. Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Clockwork Librarian, Del Dracula, Derek W.C. of History of Comics on Film, Dr. G. Nerdologist, Dirk Ashton, Ed Moore at Teal Productions, Eugene R. Hendricks, Flanger, who wrote, Really enjoyed this episode and your expert commentary on the actions of soldiers. Gigantopithecus, I Was Joe Was, Jeffrey Brousseau, Julazy Stuff, Julia Raoul, Kailash Jormalawuki, Writer and Media in Charge. Keith G. Baker, Lamar the Revenger, Lorenzo Sleestack, Lucretia, Maxo, Mega Kimathi, Mike at Send Aliens to Me, Obscuracom, Once Upon a Geek, Petrus Gaspard, Randy Caldwell, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Richard Field, Rogue Gun, Sam Lowe, Scott X, Superbound, 
talk nerdy to me and teal productions and i'll note that this is probably the first time i can think of where half of the responses were from sources outside of twitter this was a mix of discord blue sky tumblr just seems like a lot of people are coming from different places than uh, historically has been the case this has been the road spine podcast all audio samples are believed covered under fair use laws no copyright infringement is intended. Coming in March, Dark Horse presents Aliens Alchemy with returning guest Billy Hines. <laughs>